We'd like to open this episode by talking about the unsung hero of the Tulare County cases, Margie from Visalia. She doesn't want any credit or acknowledgement, but we can't leave out her significant contribution. Margie's been working on the Visalia and Exeter cases since 1981. She was one of the original members of the discussion board associated with the 2003 cold case files on the EARONS on A&E. She never argued, but persistently insisted that Clifton was innocent, the VR killed Jennifer Armour and Donna Richmond, and that the VR was the EAR. Everything she said made sense, and she had the documentation and knowledge to back it up. Nothing we've done on the cases would have been possible without Margie. She shared 30 years of files she had collected and obtained the Clifton case boxes for us. She's made endless trips to the courthouse and library history room and gave us invaluable ideas on leads to follow and people to contact. She previewed the podcast episodes and picked us up when we were down. Although she's had her own POIs over the years, she never cared about solving the case more than helping it be solved. She assisted the authors of at least three books about the case and smiled and remained hopeful even when they all concluded that the VR was not the EAR. She and her husband have opened their home to us, cooked us meals, poured endless cups of coffee, and sent us home with homemade treats and fresh fruit. Margie is right alongside us as we fight to see the killer of Jennifer Armour, Claude Snelling, Donna Richmond, and the attempted killer of Agent McGowan prosecuted and held accountable for his actions. She'll also be there until Oscar Clifton receives a full posthumous exoneration. We're finding it really difficult to shift our thinking about the entire series D'Angelo is now accused of committing. Traditional serial offenders are generally motivated by monetary gain or the self-satisfaction of the acts against their victims. There is usually a thrill-seeking element, but it's often secondary, more of an acceptable risk to satisfy the pressing need to commit the crime. We're looking at D'Angelo in a completely different way. Reports from people who knew him in Exeter are clear. He believed himself to be intellectually superior and better trained than all of the other law enforcement officers with whom he worked. It forces us to rethink everything we thought we knew about the VR, EAR, ONS's motivation and MO. It's possible that he's committed many more offenses than the current list would indicate. Those other crimes could have been dismissed as unrelated simply because they didn't look like ransackings, EAR signature rapes, or ONS homicides. Based on the additional burglaries Ken Clark found in Sacramento and the cat burglaries we found in Exeter, we suspect the VREAR spent a lot of time in occupied bedrooms prior to kidnapping Beth Snelling. We know law enforcement never tied any of those cat burglaries to either series at the time. We have no idea when or where D'Angelo may have first offended or how many different MOs he tried. What all of this means to us is that the VR, EAR, ONS committed crimes that had obvious clues meant to be tied together, his unique MO that was readily identifiable. However, that doesn't mean he didn't commit other offenses that looked nothing like those, crimes he didn't want law enforcement to connect. Investigators really need to open their minds to the possibility that they've missed other burglaries, rapes, and murders. We had noticed a rash of arsons in Tulare County between 1973 and 74, and we would not discount those. Outsmarting fire investigators would be equally satisfying. It has never escaped our notice that the ONS cases stopped at the exact same time that DNA evidence was first used in a criminal case in the United States. It seemed like a reach to try to argue that the offender would have been aware of it, but it doesn't sound unlikely when you're dealing with a former police officer married to an attorney. 
Investigators should look at unsolved homicides with no seminal or blood DNA evidence. Are there cases with skin cell DNA he couldn't have predicted being a problem? Is there evidence such as clothing or bedding that should go to the lab for cutting-edge forensic testing? It's been reported that D'Angelo was last in Exeter in April of 2018, and we have a short list of unsolved Tulare County major crimes since 1975. We're going to give all of those another look as soon as we have more time. We wouldn't make any assumptions about what he did or didn't do right now. Everything should be on the table until it can be investigated and eliminated. What we do know is that the best chances to stop the EAR occurred in November 1974 and December 1975 in Exeter. We're going to double down here and plainly state that we believe that the wrongful conviction of Oscar Clifton was the most consequential known miscarriage of justice in California history. By that, we're not referring to the consequences for Oscar and his family. Rather, by definition, wrongful convictions end up covering for the actual guilty party, leaving him free to offend again. We are unaware of any other case of this magnitude. We said last year that Jennifer Armour and Donna Richmond were killed by the VRARONS and we stand by the statement today, 100%. If that's true, TCSO and the Tulare County DA were in the position to prevent over 50 rapes, an attempted murder, and 12 homicides, of which we're aware. Their sworn duty was to protect the citizens it served, stop criminals, and bring justice to victims. They failed on all accounts, not by accident or omission, but by purposefully ignoring and hiding exculpatory evidence, presenting false testimony, creating false evidence, and destroying all of the physical evidence that could have led to the identity of the real killer as early as the 1990s. This was not bad police work. It was prosecutorial and police misconduct, and a cover-up, and it appears to be ongoing. The only question we have is why. We've talked a lot about framing, and it's always been a podcast theme, but it's starting to lay itself out in front of us with very little speculation or reaching. As we've discussed, we've always believed that the VRERONS was creating some kind of roadmap of his attacks for law enforcement to follow. We, and others, have simply seen the cases differently than the EAR task force members did. Maybe it's our specific lives and investigatory experiences, or just the way we look at facts and evidence. We're always turning things and looking at them from the side or back. There was never any debate in our minds about the VRB and the EAR because we felt that we were looking at a picture he had painted, and it was meant to be viewed as his masterpiece. We saw the Exeter homicides as obvious pieces of the whole, and Poole and Vaughn agreed. That was enough to keep us going. That's all that kept us going some days. We saw the unique MO points as clues that law enforcement were meant to follow, He didn't let us see his peeping, prowling, and cat burglaries. Those were for him. We aren't impressed by D'Angelo or very interested in him. We don't care why he did what he did. He's a sexual psychopath who blames others for his problems and shortcomings. He enjoys making people suffer and feeling superior to them. He raped and killed because he liked it and he got away with it. We'd like him to confess to the details of his crimes to resolve the cases for the victims and families, but we have no interest in his excuses and lies. It's obvious that he is intelligent, and 
He was well-trained in criminal investigations and forensics, and that aspect of him made his crimes unique. He was unusually engaged with shaping the law enforcement investigations and press coverage of his crimes. Most serial rapists and killers just don't want to be caught, but D'Angelo wanted to be famous. We always thought that the VR spree after Jennifer Armour's funeral and the showy ransackings after the Snelling homicide were meant to be noticed. He could have hit outside Visalia in any number of the nearby towns with different police forces, but he didn't. He stayed right in VPD's face. Our renewed deep dive into Exeter crime has made us wonder if D'Angelo built his promotion to sergeant and head of the burglary unit by committing burglaries, planting the stolen items in the homes of his chosen suspects, and then solving the cases. There is no way to read the papers and not notice the sudden spike in Exeter burglaries with a new super cop solving them. We always knew that the VREARONS was working on a lot of different levels with complicated motives, but now we feel like we need a wall chart just to keep track of three years in Tulare County. We imagine that the power of getting away with burglaries, framing innocent people, arresting them, and then getting promoted for it would have been very satisfying. It's really dark to consider that he may have been picking out innocent people and sending them to jail, but the idea keeps creeping back in. We know that claims of being framed would have fallen on totally deaf ears. All of this brings us back to the Richmond case, and another theory that we only hinted at in prior episodes. We have long feared that the main motive of Donna Richmond's killer was to frame Oscar Clifton for the VR series, Snelling and Armour Homicides, and the attempted murder of Agent McGowan. He left all of the clues for law enforcement. We know because we followed them. After getting caught in the stakeout, the VR obviously realized that the only way VPD would ever stop chasing him is if they arrested and convicted someone else. The McGowan shooting was the night of December 10th, 1975. The first VR composite and description was published on December 18th, and Donna was killed on December 26th. It's really difficult to explain why Donna's murder looks so off to us from the beginning. We're familiar with the details of hundreds of homicides involving young female victims, and this case just felt different. It seemed more like someone writing a murder mystery than a spontaneous, compulsive act. There is no doubt that Donna was a victim of opportunity. Her plans developed as the day went along, and there were delays and detours along the route. We're not sure if anyone knew that the girls were heading to Don Lee's house when they left Judy Stewart's. Mrs. Richmond seemed to find out from Carol when she called looking for Donna. Regardless, there was no way for anyone to know that the girls would leave Donna to ride home alone. Someone came upon her and got her and her bike into his vehicle. The first thing that struck us as odd was the fact that Donna was abducted by someone who seemed to be incredibly rushed for time. The farthest he could have driven her is about three miles straight down Marinette to Neal Ranch, a matter of minutes. This was about four o'clock on a Friday afternoon in the middle of orange picking season. We've got some photos of the grove on our website. The center of the grove where Donna was found has the advantage of being completely concealed from all houses and main roads, but there is no way to know if anyone is nearby. Five people could be picking a couple of rows away and you wouldn't be able to see them. There are also grove roads going through that area 
and someone could have driven by at any time. If he had driven east just a few more minutes, it would have taken them into the foothills and a hundred secluded places, places where Donna might not have been found for a very long time. Now that we're seriously looking at the entire case as a planned framing of Clifton for all the Tulare cases, we realize that Neil Ranch may have been chosen simply for its proximity and similarity to the location where Jennifer Armour was killed, which was about one and a half miles almost due north. That detail immediately made us connect the cases. Maybe that was the killer's intent. We also have to think about time and purpose. Donna was killed in a place where she would not be found that night, but was likely to be found the next day when the grove was full of workers. He wanted her discovered, but he may have wanted to control the time of discovery. The only reason we could think of would be to muddle the exact time of death, perhaps to make it harder for Clifton to provide an alibi or to make his own alibi more plausible. There is no evidence that the killer spent any extended time with Donna. She left no footprints in the grove. There was no sign of a significant struggle, and given her head injury, it's likely she was unconscious or incapacitated very quickly. She was not sexually assaulted in any way, and there was no sign of her being bound or gagged. All of her injuries occurred close together in time, shortly before her death. The evidence points to Donna being dead within minutes of her departure from Don Lee's house. Donna's lower clothing also creates a lot of questions. The grove was muddy, a thick, dark mud. None of that mud was found on Donna's shoes, underpants, or pants. The items were also free of blood from her wounds, so it appears that she removed them, or the killer did, while she was in his vehicle. We originally thought that he might have decided against a sexual assault because of the menstrual blood, but that is not consistent with the EAR or an older offender. It's possible that rape was never his real motive. Were her clothes removed to make it look like a sexual assault? The fact that he took the clothing with him makes this seem more likely. Why take the clothing? He's running the risk of being found with them in his car. Why not leave them or drop them in the canal as he exited the grove? Why not burn them or bury them? Why not throw them out with Donna's bike? Instead, he drove them to the other side of Exeter and dropped them in a miles-long path, right on and in the road, sure to be found quickly. We believe this was another attempt by the killer to make sure that TCSO connected the armor and Richmond homicides. Jennifer's shoes, pants, and underwear were not on the bank with her blouse and were never found. TCSO did drag the canal and search downstream, but turned up nothing. Since Jennifer was not found for nine days, someone who found her clothing may not have connected it to her death. We would be very interested to know where that might have been. Although we've considered all possibilities, we believe that Donna was killed in the grove, very close to where she was found. The only blood was found under her body, so it's likely that she was stabbed and placed under the tree very quickly. Since she crawled a short distance after the killer left, she was still alive in the grove and not killed elsewhere. Given the nature of her penetrating chest wounds, she could not have lived long. Nothing about this makes sense. So many risks. A daylight kidnapping on a main road and then into a grove that could be full of workers. He killed her almost immediately and then left quickly. 
The only other piece of evidence collected in the grove was an item described as a multicolored ski cap that is described very similarly to the mask seen by Beth Snelling three months earlier. It was found on the road leading out of the grove towards the spot where Donna's bike was found. There's only one photo of that cap or mask, and it's crumpled. You can see it on our website. It was destroyed in 1977 with the other physical evidence. Even if it wasn't the Snelling mask, it could still be an important part of the puzzle. TCSO originally picked it up thinking it could have been proof that Donna was abducted by a masked attacker. That type of clue would draw attention away from any thought of Donna getting in the vehicle on her own, either with someone she knew or an authority figure. Presumably, the killer then drove about three miles southwest to the spot where Donna's bike was found. This could have been done by staying off the main roads and traveling largely through the groves. Our website has photos of this location and the bike, with its front tire and handlebars turned backwards. You can also see photos of Oscar's invoice book and the unidentified jotter pad also reportedly found near the bike. As always, here we are back at the invoice book. How did Oscar's invoice book get to the scene if he didn't drop it there while he was kidnapping Donna? Simple. The killer put it there to frame him. This is another idea that now sounds a lot less crazy than it did a year ago, or even three weeks ago. It is undisputed that Exeter PD Officer Gomez arrived at the Richmond house almost immediately after Donna's bike was found and was dispatched by TCSO to have Exeter officers commence a search of the city for Donna. Later, they assisted with the search of the groves around the bike and crowd control at the scene. We've talked to an officer who worked the bike scene that night and knew D'Angelo, and he does not remember seeing him there. We have no idea where he was that night. D'Angelo's name doesn't appear in any of the TCSO reports or newspaper stories on the case. We do know that when TCSO Sergeant Bird left the bike scene, he went to the Exeter PD station to make phone calls and coordinate the search. Again, we don't know who was there or what might have been discussed. Bird claimed to learn Oscar's current address during his time at Exeter PD. Did that information come from D'Angelo or his brother-in-law, the phone installer? Oscar had recently moved into a new house. These questions have never been asked or answered. What we do know is the simple truth that Oscar was seen in Visalia at around 3.45 and was home between 4.15 and 4.30. He could not have been abducting Donna in Exeter between 3.45 and 4.15. It's possible that Donna's killer had Oscar's invoice book in his possession prior to abducting Donna. The invoice book was not used between the 23rd and 26th and is unknown when it went missing from one of the family's unlocked vehicles. The reason for choosing Oscar was obvious, his 1965 conviction for attempted rape. Oscar had recently moved back to the Farmersville area, back into the jurisdiction of the same TCSO officers who had investigated his 1965 case. There was no chance that Oscar would fail to be identified if TCSO found his invoice book. We've also been able to establish that it would have been easy for the killer to obtain Clifton's invoice book from his truck between 5 p.m. and 6.30 p.m. when Donna's bike was discovered. It was dark around 5, and Oscar's truck was parked on the far side of the garage, out of view and hearing of the kids alone in the house. Oscar and his wife were at his in-laws and did not return again until 7, and then left again immediately, still in the family car. 
We know that the killer got within about a mile and a half from Oscar's house since the second shoe was found there. So it's not a stretch to believe he used a Grove Road near Oscar's truck to come and go unseen from the house. The only thing that's always bothered us about the idea that the invoice book was stolen after the murder is why the killer didn't leave Donna's clothing in Oscar's truck. There could be two reasons. One, he had already dropped all of the items before he decided to go down to Oscar's house and didn't want to be seen retrieving them. Or two, he wasn't sure which truck in the driveway belonged to Oscar. Rick Carter's truck was also parked there, and it wouldn't work to accidentally implicate him. He was 18, tall and broad with dark hair, and he hadn't been convicted of attempted rape. If the killer had accidentally planted evidence in Rick's truck, it would have ruined any chance of Clifton being connected to the VR and could have signaled the framing. If the killer didn't know for certain which truck Clifton had been driving that day, picking the wrong one would have ruined everything. Just taking an item that had the Clifton name on it was the safest move and turned out to be enough. Additionally, we also have the unexplained jotter pad found with the invoice book. It clearly did not belong to Oscar, he didn't recognize it, and the handwriting did not belong to him. TCSO made no investigation into the ownership of the jotter pad prior to trial, and didn't even bring it or enter it into evidence until Donahue asked the forensics officer about it on the stand. Rick Carter was never asked about ownership of the jotter pad, or if it was in his truck when he arrived at the Clifton's the afternoon of the 26th. So it's possible that the killer never intended to implicate Clifton by leaving the invoice book, but rather by planting Donna's clothing in his truck. After realizing that there were two work trucks at the house, he may have shifted gears, taken the invoice book from the white truck and the jotter pad from the primer truck, and dropped Donna's clothing in a trail that led back to Exeter. This would explain the shoes and panties being on the south and east sides of the road. Presumably, the killer could have been back near the bike by 5.30, parked in the grove, and walked down through the trees to make sure the bike hadn't yet been discovered. In addition to the 5.30 to 6.30 time window, there was also approximately an hour between 7 when all of the Richmonds had returned home and about 8 when the scene was finally secured by TCSO. The original Richmond statements make no mention of the invoice book, so we're leaving open all possibilities. As we've said before, we believe that this was the VR's second attempt to frame Clifton, the first being a few months earlier, immediately after the Snelling homicide. John Bond is the one who made that connection. For 40 years, he had been unable to make sense of finding VR loot in a ditch between Visalia and Exeter. Although the location was in TCSO jurisdiction, Vaughn and another VPD officer were out searching after a VR stolen gun was found in the area a few days earlier. The ditch was right by the home of Clifton's parents, the only address for the family in the phone directory that year. Not only would the original 1965 TCSO officers have connected that location to Clifton, but the current sheriff also knew the family through a roping horse he borrowed. The same house was staked out by TCSO the night of Clifton's arrest. However, that location and Oscar Clifton meant absolutely nothing to VPD, and the clue designed to point to Clifton fell flat. Obviously, it was meant for TCSO, and it was just the VR's bad luck that VPD found it instead. We've never been sure if the trail of Donna's clothing was meant to point to Oscar's house, where he'd only lived a short time, or the more well-known address of his parents on Hypericum. It could be either. 
we know that Donna's pants were found at 5.45 p.m., so the total window of Donna's abduction, murder, dumping of her bike, and dispersing of her clothing was completed between 3.45, when she left Don Lee's house, and 5.45. Even the prosecution agreed that Oscar arrived home no later than 4.45. Donna's pants were clean and dry, with no tire marks, despite being retrieved from the middle of a main road. They had not been there for an hour or more. We know there was no blood or mud found on any of Oscar's clothing in his truck or house, and his pocket knife, the supposed murder weapon, did not contain any blood or Donna's DNA. The real murder weapons were never found, so it must not have been safe to discard them with the other evidence. Perhaps they were identifiable as connected to the killer. Donna was hit on the head with an object and stabbed. Matching items never have been identified. Maybe they were discovered by a citizen who did not connect them to the case. We'll likely never know. So, how would Donna's killer have known about Oscar's 1965 conviction? At this point, we can only speculate. Oscar had recently returned from several years living and working away from Tulare County. Perhaps his return had been discussed among Exeter law enforcement. TCSO used the Exeter PD station as a substation since their offices were in Visalia. At least four of the top command officers at TCSO had been involved in the 1965 case. We also know that it was common knowledge for many who had grown up in the Farmersville area in the 1960s, the case had received a lot of publicity, and the Clifton family was known in the area. The fact that D'Angelo's sister's house backed up to Danny Boland's is a good example. Gossip with a cop would obviously tend to fall to crime and criminals. It's also possible that the information came directly from D'Angelo's sister or brother-in-law. They lived in Exeter in 1965 and may have been aware of the story at the time. Also, phone installers know a lot about who lives where and when they move to a new location. Maybe D'Angelo just asked other officers about area sex offenders or looked them up. There are endless possibilities. What we do know is that whoever framed Oscar did not know everything about him. Although he was blonde with a round face, he was 6'1", 145 pounds. There was no way VPD was ever going to buy him as the VR based on the McGowan and Snelling height and build descriptions. Oscar also had recently sustained a severe knee injury that required the removal of his kneecap and left him with constant pain and swelling. He wore a metal knee brace that attached to a special pair of shoes. Although the DA tried to minimize this injury, people we've spoken to laughed at the idea of Oscar getting down on his knees in the grove to kill Donna. It was more likely than not that TCSO would have found Oscar in the grove like a beetle, unable to get back up and walk away. We have no doubt that Oscar's injury was real. We found several receipts for new knee braces paid for from the money Oscar earned at his prison job. He never would have wasted those precious funds on something he didn't really need. It's also pretty clear that the VR would not have had a ton of blonde, round-faced convicted sex offenders from which to choose, especially ones who had been accused of attacking an innocent teen girl alone in a public place during daylight hours. We think trying to match the MO and the McGowan composite and description would have been the main goals. Blaming Clifton for the entire series didn't work in 1975, but it's come a whole lot closer in the last year. TCSO not only publicly accused Oscar of killing Jennifer Armour, but they were also trying to make a case against him as the VR and Snelling killer. 
Apparently, clearing all of your county's cold cases by blaming someone who can't defend himself is easier than finding the real killer. While we've been shocked at how little the current TCSO investigators know about the cases, they are far from the only ones who continue to believe gossip, rumors, and just plain wrong facts about the Richmond and Armour homicides and the Clifton conviction. Although we've covered some of this in prior episodes, we're going to make one more attempt to address misinformation that's currently interfering with the efforts to find the connections between D'Angelo and the Exeter cases. The most persistent rumor is also the most awful, that Donna Richmond was raped and sodomized. We have not spoken to one person from Tulare County who has not believed this lie for over 40 years. Not one. We'll break it down one last time. Most often cited is the Exeter Sun article of December 31, 1975. That article based its facts on the charges filed by D.A. Powell the day before, and they included rape and sodomy. As we've said, Powell had actual knowledge that those charges were false when he filed them, and they were later dropped. He did this solely to inflame the community against Clifton and deny him a fair trial. As we've said before, we are not going to read the autopsy report, but it is extremely detailed and specific in regards to all examinations that would indicate a sexual assault. Swabs from all relevant areas were taken, and all were negative for spermatozoa. TCSO and D.A. Powell had this information by 8 p.m. on December 27, 1975, about six hours after Donna's body was found on Neil Ranch. All of this is in writing in front of us. We're not guessing, theorizing, or filling in the blanks. Dr. Miller's testimony at trial was also conclusive. Donna was not raped or sodomized. Again, due to the graphic nature of the questioning, we're not going to read it, So how was Clifton convicted of attempted rape? It was based on the false assertion that although there was no spermatozoa or foreign blood type found on Donna, that a wash of her pubic hair had tested positive for the presence of seminal fluid. The testing was experimental and was conducted by a graduate student who was writing a paper on its effectiveness. From the lab notes we have, it's clear that he did not use the proper dilution rate and left it to develop for too long. These errors have the effect of creating a false positive, likely picking up urine, fecal matter, and or chemicals from the pesticide or herbicide that was sprayed on Donna's body when she was found. However, you don't really need to believe us or the complicated science. The real proof that Oscar didn't sexually assault Donna was presented to the grand jury. D.A. Powell questioning forensic student Michael Grubb. What was your conclusion from your examining the samples of pubic hair of Donna Jo Richmond? The reaction that I received that came up was indicative of the presence of semen. Did you do any of the blood typing, or was that done by someone else? Yes, I then picked up the material at a later date and performed an ABO typing of the material on the pubic hair. The reaction that I received was indicative of a type A individual, and that is as far as I could type it. Hold it right there. Oscar Clifton had blood type O. We have the lab notes. It's right here. So how come the grand jury indicted Clifton if there was testimony that the killer had blood type A? Because they never knew that Oscar was type O. In a long list of misconduct by D.A. Powell, this might be the worst. 
because it goes directly to the heart of the criminal case against Clifton. The defense attorney and defendant are not allowed to be present at the grand jury. It's the prosecution case only, presented to obtain a criminal indictment. That means that the DA has an enormous responsibility to tell the truth. Pell was careful never to ask Grubb what Oscar's blood type was, and the grand jury must have just assumed he matched, or the entire thing went right over their heads. We also hold Grubb responsible here. He was very young and just starting his career, but he had a duty to tell more than a half-truth, especially since he knew it was being used to intentionally mislead the jury. We have no idea how much of this Donahue understood. In his favor, he was not present to hear that testimony. The lab notes discuss the typing in inhibition terms rather than plainly stating blood type A, and the invoice for the lab testing refers to the test used rather than saying ABO typing. It's possible that Donahue didn't understand what he had in front of him. Additionally, the defense forensic consultants did not review any of the lab notes or grand jury testimony, despite it being offered to him. He relied solely on a walkthrough narrative from Morton. We do know that Donahue got the grand jury transcript as soon as it was typed up, so half of the information was right there. He should have immediately checked to confirm Oscar's blood type, even if he didn't have the notes or understand them. Well, this all came out at the trial, right? Nope. Grubb took the stand and didn't say one word about the testing he did on Donna's pubic hair, the supposed finding of semen, or the blood typing tests he performed on it. Nothing. Neither Powell nor Donahue asked him about any of the critical grand jury testimony that got Clifton indicted. Instead, Powell asked a completely different criminalist, Blake, about the semen finding. Powell, now, did you examine the pubic hair material of Donna Jo Richmond for human semen? Yes, I did. And what was your conclusion? My conclusion was that human semen was contained on those pubic hairs. All right. No further questions. That's it. How did Blake make that determination? By reading Grubb's lab notes? Guessing? Ouija board? There was no discussion of the testing method, its scientific basis, or reliability. The jury didn't even hear that there was a test. We're still not really sure what happened next. Donahue began asking Blake if it was possible to type human semen, and Blake, instead of just talking about standard ABO typing, launched into a theoretical discussion related to identifying a specific individual, kind of a pre-DNA testing theoretical idea that might have been possible in the future. Powell cut him off mid-sentence. Pardon me, objection. I'm not sure this is responsive. The court. Well, I think you might be getting a little... Would you gentlemen approach the bench? Court reporter. Whereupon, a brief discussion was had at the bench outside the hearing of the jury and without this reporter. Mr. Donahue. I have no other questions. So, without any testimony about the testing method, or even whether or not he personally performed the testing... Blake just made the statement that semen was present. If Donahue was trying to ask about the ABO testing, Blake stalled and rambled a bit until Powell jumped in to stop it, and for some reason the judge agreed that the question of whether or not the supposed semen had been blood typed should not be heard. That one-sentence statement of a semen finding from Blake was the grounds for the attempted rape conviction and the aggravating factor that sent Clifton to death row. It was also used as the aggravating factor to deny Clifton parole for the last 30 years of his life. To be crystal clear here, 
There was no testimony at trial as to how the determination of the presence of semen on Donna's pubic hair was made. The testing done by Grubb and presented to the grand jury was hidden from the trial jury, where it would have needed to meet the Fry standard of scientific reliability. There was never any spermatozoa found anywhere on any evidence, and if seminal fluid were present, the person who left it was blood type A. If D'Angelo is the EAR, we know his blood type is A, but also he's a non-secretor, so his blood type is not expressed in his semen. However, we also know the EAR's PGM type, which is expressed, and it's 2 minus 1. The only PGM type found on Donna's pubic hair was Donna's own, 1 minus 1. As we've always said, we don't believe there was any seminal fluid on Donna. The visual findings were actually fresh tree spray. No spermatozoa were found, and all of the testing on the pubic hair was consistent with Donna's menstrual blood type, A, and PGM type, 1 minus 1. The testimony of finding semen was manufactured evidence, and the true facts of it were hidden from the jury. We stand by that statement, and we have the documentation to support it. We'd also like to repeat that Oscar Clifton was not convicted of rape in 1965. It was attempted rape. As we've said before, there was no attempted rape, and the young woman was not injured in any way. She did not stay on the scene to talk to the police or identify Oscar, who by then was swimming in the river. The victim did not call the police or ask for the police to be called. She refused to cooperate with any prosecution until her older sister took her to sign a pre-typed statement out of fear the police were going to continue to hound them until she went to the station. This isn't speculation on our part, it's the victim's story, in her own words. Unless you were on the beach with her, please don't tell people that you know what happened. You don't. The young woman in that case was 18, and Oscar was 24. Their mothers worked together, and he startled her when he approached her. That's it. Oscar was wearing swimming trunks, not really the outfit of a man police claimed was driving around the county looking for a girl to attack. Also, it seems obvious that he would have gotten into his car and driven away if he had just assaulted someone who escaped. Rather, the police found him calmly swimming in the river when they arrived 15 to 30 minutes later. Despite the claims of the witness, responding officers were unable to locate any sign of a stocking mask. They combed the riverbanks and searched Clifton's car. They even came back the next day to search again and look downstream. No mask, stockings, or stocking package were ever found. We have a lot more to say about the man parked on the riverbank who called the police, but the short version is that he was a citizen police volunteer who drove around listening for police calls and patrolling the Ivanhoe area. Ask yourself this. If he really heard a girl screaming and then saw Oscar holding her down, or wearing a stocking on his face, or trying to drag her under the bridge, why didn't he open his truck door? He was parked just yards above them, yet when the young woman reached his truck, he was still there. At no point did he approach her or Oscar to intervene or try to hold Oscar for the police. He just stayed at his truck. His inaction, coupled with the young woman's story of a non-event, are supported by the facts that she did not seek or need medical treatment, and that Oscar was not arrested at the scene. We have the original reports and documents in this case. If you want to believe that Oscar killed Donna, that's your right. 
but the facts of the 1965 case are not proof of violent tendencies or a history of sexual assault. Oscar started having parole hearings in 1983, and part of that process was a psychiatric evaluation and recommendation. We're going to share some of those here. We aren't going to read the entire report since they have a lot of details about classes taken, training, and unimportant facts about prison life. However, we are not omitting or altering anything that pertains to the actual psych vows. Psychiatric Council Evaluation for the Board of Prison Terms, October 1983 Calendar, Life Prisoner. The Psychiatric Council saw Mr. Clifton for his fourth psychiatric report to the Board of Prison Terms on 8-18-83. He came to CMC East on 11-15-77 from San Quentin on a conviction of murder first. All during his incarceration, he is denied responsibility for the murder for which he was convicted on circumstantial evidence only. Members on the Psychiatric Council included Drs. Ory, Butler, Brandmeier, DeVoli, Tolchin, Allison, Elam, and Ms. Case, PSW. He was seen at this meeting primarily to allow us to understand his current situation. He brought in a packet of legal documents which included a transcript from a recent appeal hearing in Tulare. His case is now under submission with the Federal District Court in Sacramento, and he feels confident that a judgment will be granted in his favor. He states that six witnesses have now been located who can testify to his presence 11 miles away from the scene of the crime at exactly the time of the crime. Also, the only document linking him to the crime is a blue invoice book he used in his business. He believes that this book may have been stolen from his car while parked in a parking lot two days before the crime. He also described that a tape recording done by a police investigator on the second day of his trial had been uncovered in an unmarked box at the sheriff's department, and this was an interview with a man who saw the defendant in his place of work at the exact time the crime was committed. This had never been presented as evidence, as the defendant had discovered its existence some years later. The case has also been complicated by the fact that the defendant's original attorney died suddenly three hours before he was due to testify in an appeal hearing, and an investigator was killed in an accident the day before he was due to present evidence also. Mental Status Examination The subject was on time for the interview and appeared to be in good spirits. He presented his new evidence to us in a fairly orderly fashion, but he did tend to drift off into non-essential points, if not interrupted. He continues to claim complete innocence for any crime of this sort, either at the time or previously. He also pointed out how there had been other crimes of the same M.O. perpetrated after he had been incarcerated. There was no evidence of any psychotic thinking patterns, such as hallucinations or delusions. He showed no unusual speech pattern. He was able to maintain good eye contact with the group. He did not show any unusual signs of anxiety or depression. His memory is excellent, and his general fund of knowledge appears to be quite accurate. He also devoted his time almost entirely to fighting his case in the courts, but if he should be released, he intends to go back to the contracting profession. Recommendations Since the Psychiatric Council is not a judicial body empowered with determining guilt or innocence of any person's crime, no comments can be made on that issue. We did not find any evidence of mental illness during this session. There seems to be no reason for psychiatric intervention in his case at this time, as disposition will be dependent upon the findings in the higher courts. This report is not confidential, and a copy may be given to the inmate. Ralph B. Allison, M.D., Staff Psychiatrist. Psychiatric Evaluation for the Board of Prison Terms, December 1985, Lifer Calendar, CMC East. Clifton. B76889 is a 47-year-old first-termer 
serving a life sentence for the crime of murder first. In compiling this report, in addition to the examination of this inmate, his central file was also reviewed. General Appearance and Mental Status Mr. Clifton came on time for the appointment. He appeared as a very youthful man in spite of his 47 years of age. He was alert, fully oriented, and in an anxious mood. He showed no thought disorder, no perceptual disturbance, a fair judgment, good fund of information for common events, and generally revealed no sign of mental disease, disorder, or defect. His verbalizations were primarily those of a person who was extremely preoccupied with his position, inability to prove his innocence, his knowledge of the legal intricacies, and the desire to utilize them, his despair over his loss of freedom, business, family, and all the assets which he had been able to accumulate prior to his incarceration. Opinion. Mr. Clifton is indeed a partially destroyed man, conscious of an uncertain future. His many efforts to alter the course of justice have all failed. His fresh attempts to utilize new evidences seem to be destined to the same fate. One receives the impression that this man has succeeded only in becoming an expert in legal matters, which, tragically enough, are influencing his thinking in a negative fashion. He continues denying his criminal responsibility in the instant offense, and does so by implicating the erroneous utilization, on the part of the court, of only circumstantial evidence. While the records at times leave me with ambivalent feelings, the overall picture does otherwise. In conclusion, I believe that Mr. Clifton is a better person than he was at the time of his incarceration. He is now 47 years old. A more mature person who is suffering has indeed contributed to an understanding of the needs and feelings of other human beings. He is not suffering from any mental disease, disorder, or defect. He will be able to continue making gains in all areas of human endeavor, and with emotional support from his family on the outside, his skills, and the wisdom of age, he will be able to make it through the jungle of the outside world. If the board should decide to let him go free, there are no psychiatric reasons to prevent that move. Louis DeVoli, MD, Staff Psychiatrist. Psychiatric Evaluation for the Board of Prison Terms, December 1989 Calendar, CMC East. Mental status examination reveals him to be alert, oriented, and in good contact with his surroundings, and displaying no flatness of affect, no looseness of associations, no disparity between affect and thought content, and no other evidence of major thought disorder. Mood fluctuations are seemingly appropriate to the content of his thought and expressed in his speech. He appears to be a man of at least average intelligence who is absolutely convinced of his own innocence. Whatever the reality is, I am convinced that he presently believes everything he is telling us. He has claimed to have witnesses who can place him several miles from the scene and has mentioned about his case on appeal. Like many other examiners, I find no evidence of severe psychopathology, no indications of psychosexual confusion, and all of his major ego fluctuations, including reality testing, appear to be intact. I concur with Drs. Tolchin and Allison that there is no psychiatric diagnosis other than the diagnosis of no mental disorder. He appears to be emotionally stable and sound. In my opinion, violence potential is minimal. I also concur with previous examiners that parole consideration should be based on factors other than psychiatric ones at this time. Signed, Robert C. Brandmeier, M.D., Senior Psychiatrist, co-signed, James B. Hollingsworth, M.D., Assistant Warden, Psych Services. 
Psychological Evaluation for the Board of Prison Terms, December 1994 Calendar, CMC East. Mental Status Evaluation. Mr. Clifton arrived promptly for the interview, presenting himself in a cooperative manner with tidy grooming. He was oriented in the three spheres with mood and affect, both within normal limits. He appeared to function within the normal range of intelligence and his thought processes appeared to be intact. Previous evaluators have suggested he is obsessed with proving his innocence. If he is in fact not guilty, he cannot be considered to be obsessed. No signs of a serious thought disorder, mood disorder, or mental illness were observed during the interview. Conclusions and Recommendations Psychopathy has not been related to criminal behavior at this point. During observation in the institution, he is programmed while struggling with the appeal process. From a psychological standpoint, this inmate should continue in his present programming. Based on his disciplinary free behavior, his current level of dangerousness compared to other incarcerated felons appears to be below average. Serious parole considerations are premature until pending appeals are completed. This report is not confidential and a copy is to be provided to Mr. Clifton for his review. Edwin P. Jensky, Ph.D., Staff Psychologist. Subsequent Risk Assessment for the Board of Parole Hearings, Forensic Assessment Division, California Men's Colony, CMC. Mental Status Examination. Mr. Clifton is a 71-year-old Caucasian male who was appropriately attired and groomed. He entered the interview room slowly, but without the assistance of a wheelchair walker or cane. When asked whether he needed such mobility accommodations, Mr. Clifton replied no. He added that he was able to walk, albeit slowly, and that being as mobile as possible was better for him. Mr. Clifton established and maintained adequate levels of eye contact and a positive rapport with the examiner, and was in general attentive, cooperative, and respectful during the course of the interview. Mr. Clifton exhibited an appropriate range of affect and a pleasant, stable mood. There were no significant symptoms of a post-traumatic nature, flashbacks, nightmares, hypervigilance, etc., noted or observed. Currently, Mr. Clifton is reportedly experiencing changes in his energy level, his appetite, his sleeping habits, and or his overall life satisfaction. He noted that he tends to sleep up to 18 hours a day and that his energy level is consistently low. In discussing these issues, Mr. Clifton opined that the aforementioned symptoms are likely the result of his chronic medical conditions, years of receiving chemotherapy, and his advanced age, rather than due to his mental health status. Mr. Clifton's receptive and expressive language skills appeared to fall within the average range as demonstrated by his use of vocabulary and his level of comprehension. Effective communication was easily established in English. Overall, Mr. Clifton's language was appropriate in both content and context, and his speech rate and prosody were normal. No deficit was noted in language pragmatics. Verbal reasoning and conceptualization skills appeared to be within the average range. He displayed an appropriate sense of humor. As noticed, the examiner spoke more slowly and with a louder tone than usual to ensure that he could effectively hear the questions. In general, Mr. Clifton displayed thought processes that were goal-oriented and logical. His attention, concentration, short-term and long-term memory functioning all appeared to be within the average range. Based upon the aforementioned observations, it is this examiner's estimation that Mr. Clifton falls roughly within the average range of intellectual ability. His fund of information was commiserate with his reported level of education and his estimated level of cognitive ability. During the course of the interview portion of this evaluation, Mr. Clifton was oriented in all spheres. 
Mr. Clifton has not been issued any CDCR 115 rules violation reports since his last board hearing. In fact, a review of his records indicates that he has never been issued an RVR during the course of his imprisonment. Parole plans if granted release. When asked what he thought the chances were that he would be found suitable for parole at his upcoming BPH hearing, Mr. Clifton replied, I should be. I have finally had my appeal for DNA testing, and I should be cleared. It should show that I did not commit any crime. When asked about his actual parole plans, Mr. Clifton replied, they are the same as they have been. Specifically, Mr. Clifton stated that he would like to live in Elk Grove with his wife and noted that he has two brothers who are willing to house him. He added that his wife is currently taking care of her own infirmed mother and that the three of them would live together. Mr. Clifton plans on filing for SSI and would need to find physicians in a hospital to assist him with his ongoing medical needs. Although he claimed that his wife has medical insurance to which he could be added, Mr. Clifton also stated that he has his own insurance through the union. No mention of employment, including part-time, was reported as part of Mr. Clifton's plans. Inmate Understanding of Life Crime When asked to provide his version of the offense, Mr. Clifton responded, I did not commit the crime. As I have always stated, I am innocent. Mr. Clifton's claims are consistent with his previous claims that he is not the person who perpetrated the offense. Remorse and Insight into Life Crime Insight and remorse are abstract concepts, which do not readily lend themselves to operational definition or quantifiable measurement. Therefore, any opinions regarding insight and or remorse are subjective in nature and should be interpreted with this caveat in mind. In addressing his life-term offense and his behavior related to it, Mr. Clifton replied, I didn't do it. Given that Mr. Clifton has repeatedly claimed that he is innocent of perpetrating his life-term offense, it is thus next to impossible to assess his level of remorse regarding and his insight into the underlying variables related to the life offense. In addressing the issue of his prior offense, a sexual assault, Mr. Clifton reported that he was also innocent of that offense as well. There are several salient dynamic factors that influence Mr. Clifton's risk to violently reoffend. First, his insight into his behavior appears adequate, except as noted, in the areas related to his two convictions, both of which he claims to be innocent of perpetrating. Further comment upon his level of insight is not practical given Mr. Clifton's repeated claims of innocence. Second, Mr. Clifton has continued to be free from negative attitudes and perspectives during the course of his imprisonment. Additionally, he does not display a significantly antisocial mentality or history of impulsivity. Third, Mr. Clifton has never displayed the symptoms of a severe mental disorder and or a substance abuse and or dependence disorder. Thus, it is likely that these variables will not play a role in his behaviors or cause him an excessive challenge to maintain a steady level of sobriety should he be released. Overall, violence risk is thus viewed as relatively unchanged from what was offered in the CRA submitted almost exactly a year ago. Kurt C. Kukas, Ph.D., Forensic Psychologist. Stephen Walker, Ph.D., Senior Psychologist, Supervisor, Board of Parole Hearings. April 25, 2011. We still have an enormous amount of investigative work ahead of us. We will not stop working on the Richmond, Armour, and Snelling homicides until there's a confession and a guilty plea or a successful prosecution of the killer. And yes, we believe that is one person. We will also continue fighting for a total and complete exoneration of Oscar Clifton. Not for Oscar, but for his children and grandchildren and the people who believed in and fought for him to receive a new trial before his death. 